The Hamlet Podcast, episode 76. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. Sometimes the hardest part of making this podcast is choosing where to make the breaks in the text as I divide it up episode by episode. When I was sick last Christmas, I took apart the entire play and now I have a very clear map of all the episodes to come. Since last week ended halfway through a line, something I have tried to do as rarely as possible, I figured we should start this week with a quick discussion of the sejura, a tricky little feature of poetry that dates back at least as far as Homer. It's tricky because it's not something that is marked, or visible, or reliably identifiable. It's a little pause or dwelling that cuts through a line of metrical poetry, inviting a little pause. Its name comes from the Latin verb meaning to cut, worth remembering because a sejura can only occur within a line of poetry. I'll post some famous examples from the kinds of Greek and Latin poetry that Shakespeare would doubtless have learned at school in the show notes for this episode on the website before I get completely carried away with classical poetry here. A very accessible example of a sejura happens in the middle of the first line of this speech. To be or not to be, that is the question. After not to be, there's a little pause. Different editors may use different punctuation marks after it, but regardless of what's on the page, when it's spoken, there's a break in the rhythm of the line. And that is a sejura. To be or not to be? That is the question. There's another one in the middle of the line I broke at the end of the last episode. Hamlet has asked the very serious question of who would suffer all the terrible things on his list, all these human miseries, when he could pick up his dagger and end it all. In fact, Hamlet has been meandering through the same sentence for the previous 12 lines. His thoughts are jagged and unruly in this speech, and they are taking longer to articulate. The first sentence is almost five lines, the next is about the same, then we get this very long one that sprawls over 12 lines and ends with another shade of the same question. To die or not to die? Listen to them again, as it's worth having them in mind as we continue. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. To die to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream, aye, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come, when we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin? The more he thinks about it, the harder it gets. Each time he starts to ask the question, it takes him a little longer to reach the conclusion. Is death the answer? And so he continues asking more questions. Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of? 
here's the rub. Here's the point. Who in their right mind would bear all of these burdens, or fardels, just grunting and sweating through such a weary life, but that the dread of something after death puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Better the devil you know than the devil you don't, Hamlet is saying. Surely we put up with this miserable life, mostly because it might still be better than whatever something awaits us after death. Hamlet refers to death as the undiscovered country, from whose born no traveller returns. For me, I think that the undiscovered country is one of the most beautiful phrases Shakespeare ever coined. Timely, too, in an era in which adventurers were setting sail to what were, for them, new worlds and undiscovered countries. But, of course, their hope was always to come home, hopefully richer, and tell the tale. The journey to death does not operate like that, and nobody who crosses that boundary, or born, can come back from it. Poetic as this is, in the world of this play it's not entirely true. Hamlet's father has, after all, come back from the dead to incite revenge. I think Hamlet is imagining this undiscovered country more in terms of an explorer eager to go visit and then return from the dead. Death, or in this case ending one's life, is the big question in the speech, and Hamlet's point is that if he ends his life there's no guarantee that he'll get to come back. Even the ghost's visits have been temporary and limited. Hamlet knows, in his heart of hearts, that death is final. The dread of something after death puzzles the will, indeed. Puzzle here has a stronger meaning than our contemporary sense of maybe mild confusion. Here it means that this dread paralyzes the will. Fear stops action. And then Hamlet continues. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pitch and moment, with this regard their currents turn awry, and lose the name of action. Conscience does make cowards of us all, is another of these all too often quoted lines from the play. The meaning can trickle out of these phrases when we hear them too often. Conscience here could be inferred to mean our conscience, our innate sense of ethics, or good and evil, our exclusively human capacity to think things over, our capacity for introspection. It could be all of these things, or just the fear of punishment after death. Whether or not Hamlet believes in purgatory, as we discussed back in Act 1, whatever awaits us all after death is, he says, enough to make cowards of us all. Why else would we these fardels bear? And thus, the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought and enterprises of great pith and moment. With this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. He's getting really wound up here. The native hue, or normal colour, or hearty glow even, of resolution is sicklied over with the pale cast of thought. Thoughts and conscience can make a strong idea turn pale and weak. The folio text of the play says pith in the next line, and the quarto says pitch. Enterprises of great pith and moment, important clans whose essence are noteworthy. Enterprises of great pitch and moment, important clans that aim very high. Pith, P-I-T-H, seems to have been the more popular reading throughout the play's history, 
But the Arden Shakespeare edition has a great footnote that says that in Richard III, there's a line that says, How high a pitch his resolution soars. Which may indicate that the line from Hamlet could also be pitch, with a nice echo of resolution and enterprise. Whether you think the enterprises are of great pith or great pitch, Hamlet's point is that big ideas weaken when we worry about consequences. Their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Hamlet's thinking so fast here that he mixes his metaphors. The currents of a river start flowing in the wrong direction, go awry, and these enterprises remain mere ideas and therefore cannot be called action. It's a heady speech, and the last sentence ends with another sejura. This time, the break in the line can be interpreted in many ways. Hamlet interrupts himself because he has spotted Ophelia. There are as many ways of reading the next few lines as I'm sure there are stars who have played Hamlet. It can depend on whether Hamlet does know that she's there, whether he knows or not that they're being watched, that he's being watched, that she's watching him, she's going to return to her father, you name it. The words themselves are simple. Hamlet sees Ophelia and immediately interrupts his speech and then he addresses her. Soft you now, the fair Ophelia. Nymph, in thy orisons be all my sins remembered. How Hamlet's address is delivered is again down to the decisions made between actors and director in any given production. This is the first time we've seen Hamlet and Ophelia on stage together, and it contrasts significantly with the very strange description she gave to her father about their last encounter. Hamlet has just been questioning his very existence, and maybe even contemplating suicide, and so now when he sees her, he's polite and rather formal, and he asks to be remembered in her prayers, or rather, he asks her to pray for his sins. The conversation that follows between them will be the meat and potatoes of the next episode. I hope you'll join me for it. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and I'll speak to you soon.